Welcome to Sense and Sensibility, the Inflation Guy podcast. I am Michael Ashton. I am the Inflation Guy, and I'm your host. And today on the podcast, uh, I'm answering a listener question. That sounds like a very simple question, but the answer is, I think, actually fairly profound. And the question is, why does inflation matter? Sounds like a simple question, that's, but that, that's not the trivia question. I know that sounds like a trivia question, but the answer is actually uh, quite a bit longer. I'll give you the trivia question in a second, but first a word from our sponsor. We do really appreciate uh, our sponsor. And this episode of Sense and Sensibility is sponsored by Simplify ETFs, a fast-growing ETF shop democratizing access to the most sophisticated alternative strategies with diversifying strategies like market-neutral, equity-long-short, managed futures, and multi-strat quant, Simplify has a suite of compelling tools to help address the biggest concerns with the classic 60-40 portfolio. Check out their website at simplify.us. That's simplify.us, and you can find their entire lineup of ETFs at simplify.us slash ETFs. And as always, I we, like I said, we really appreciate Simplify and their sponsorship of this here podcast. Now, the trivia question, what is Dennis Ketchum? What is Dennis Ketchum's main claim to fame? Dennis Ketchum, what's his main claim to fame? And someone's going to say, well, he's Mrs. Ketchum's wife or husband or something. But it's no, there's, there's a more important one. So anyway, on with the broadcast. We... Um, the question is, uh, why is inflation important? And, you know, there's, there's obviously sort of some trivial, trivial ways to answer that question, but, but really it's, in, inflation is a fundamental quantity. It's a fundamental force. And, and so, you know, asking the question, you know, why is inflation important is a little bit like, Asking the question, hey, why is the fabric of, face, of space-time important? You know, even if you don't necessarily understand how the fabric of space-time works, it's still pretty important, right? And so inflation is, is sort of similar. So, you know, inflation isn't just a number. It's, it's part of the financial fabric that dictates how current prices and future prices and real quantities all sort of relate to each other. I mean, it is sort of the it is a an important component of the entire price system. And without the price system, capitalism doesn't work. Uh, the investment markets don't work, and many many other things having to do with corporate finance, mortgages, none of that stuff works. So, you know, similarly, if we're if we're thinking about the fabric of space time, so here's the analogy, right? So, what's gravity? Well, gravity is a force, um, and we can describe it, you know, sort of generally. We can, and, and very specifically, we can say, you know, how does, you know, we know that body one is attracted to body two with a force uh, equal to G, the gravitational constant, times the product of their masses divided by the square of the radius between them, GMM over R squared. And that gives us a perspective. A precise force. Now, you know, defining inflation is is harder to really do, actually, as precisely. But of course, it did take, you know, 
thousands of years to, <laughs> to define gravity as precisely as all that. Um, but we can also think about gravity in terms of its effect on all the stuff around it. We can think about gravity as sort of the dimples uh, in the fabric of space-time. Gravity is what ties distant things together and describes the cost of movement uh, because gravity is what kind of keeps you from moving in a straight line as you're being pulled in different directions uh, by everything in the universe. Um, similarly, the, the contours of inflation describe what's financially possible and what activities are harder or easier in terms of, of real quantities and financial quantities. Now, I'll get into more detail on, on that. We can also think about inflation, by the way, in sort of an exchange rate format, a framework and, and um, in sort of the following way, and it, which is consonant with the gravity analogy, which is another way to express it. So in finance, we often calculate present values and, and future values for, for a various set of uh, cash flows. And for a given set of nominal cash flows, what ties present and future values together are interest rates. You know, if you give me, you know, a set of, you know, 10 annual cash flows going out 10 years, and I know what interest rates are, I can tell you what the present value uh, of those things, uh, of that series of cash flows is. Um, if the, if the one-year interest rate is 10%, then I'll pay about $90 today uh, to get a $100 payment back to me in a year. And okay, the math isn't quite right there. I'd I'd pay a hundred dollars to the gate today to get hundred and ten dollars back in a year uh, at a ten percent interest rate, and that's and that's definitive. Okay, if I know that the one year interest rate is ten percent, then I know what that exchange rate is between today's dollars a hundred and the future dollars one hundred and ten. If if I am going to pay more than a hundred dollars. If I'm going to pay $102 to get that $110 in a year, then, then somebody else is going to take that $102. They're going to buy a 10% one-year bond, and they'll pay me back $110, and they'll pocket the, the difference uh, risklessly. And, and similarly, if I'm able to buy that future $110 cash flow from somebody for only $98, that could take that extra 2 bucks and... Uh, and invest it or, or, or whatever, and I'll end up with more than that 110 uh, at the end. Uh, so the if interest rates are, are at 5%, then I now have to pay, you know, now when I, if I pay, I pay more like, a, like $105 to get that 110. Again, the math isn't quite right because of the compounding, but... Um, but that change in interest rate defines the how today's cash flow and that future cash flow are related and, and sort of have to be related to be efficient. And if interest rates are instead of 10%, instead of 5%, if they're minus 1%, then 
then I'll pay more than $100 or more than $110 to get $110 in the future, which makes absolutely no sense, which is why negative interest rates are just so mind-blowing. Um, and, and in fact, I wrote a column about this back in 2016 called Wimpy's World. There's a link in the notes, and I thought it was one of my better columns in in, um, in a very long time. But it's um, describing all of kind of the weird – actually, I think I even had a podcast about the um, the weirdness that happens – with, uh, with negative interest rates. So, so interest rates, we're not talking about inflation yet, but interest rates in finance are an exchange rate of today's dollars for future dollars or today's yen for future yen or today's yen for future dollars. That's, 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 that would be two exchange rates, right? So there would be a foreign exchange, exchange rate, yen for dollars. Then there's the the interest rate exchange rate of today's yen for future yen or today's dollars for future dollars. And in fact, when we put those three things together, we have covered interest arbitrage, which is what defines forward currency exchange rates. The difference in the nominal interest rates uh, for those two currencies is what, and the, and the spot rate is what defines the forward currency rate, right? So, so, all of those things are essentially exchange rates and, and finance people and especially derivatives people completely understand this iron rule. Uh, if you give the same set of cash flows to 20 swap desks, they will all agree to within a couple of bucks what that multi-million dollar set of cash flows uh, adds up to. And, and, if, and if anybody is is off by more than a couple of bucks, it means they, they screwed something up. So finance people totally understand that iron rule. But weirdly, finance people don't always understand the corollary about inflation. So if interest, interest rates describe sort of part of financial space-time, how current and future dollars, or whatever, your currency, how they relate, current dollars and future dollars. But they tell us nothing about how those current, how current and future real quantities relate. So, example. I know that today, one apple costs a dollar. And I know that one banana costs a dollar. And therefore, I know that one apple can be exchanged for one banana. I don't have to go and sell the apple, get the dollar, and go buy the banana I can simply go to somebody who has a banana and he knows that a banana is worth a dollar and he knows my apple is worth a dollar and he wants an apple, I want a banana, and so we just we can, we can swap. So that's the current exchange rate is one apple is one banana. Um, and, um, and let's suppose that, that due to interest rates, where interest rates are, I know that in, in five years, say, my one dollar, whatever I, what I would spend on a banana or an apple, um, will be $2. Given where interest rates are, where nominal interest rates, I know that I'll double my money in five years. Okay. But the interest rates, though, tell me nothing about what the exchange rate will be between apples and bananas in five years. Um, or for that matter, whether, whether I can buy any apples or bananas. There's the old, the old joke about, you know, how, um, uh, you know, in the future... You know, a million dollars, you know, you'll walk around 
and a million dollars will be like $10 to you today, the problem is that a Big Mac will cost you a million dollars. And, um, and that's the, and that's sort of the rub, right? So you know that this $1 and you know this because of interest rates, you know, this $1 will turn into two, but you have no idea just from that, what it will buy. So, but if I know what apples and bananas, what their exchange rate is in the future, and if I know that for all items of exchange, then I have the entire fabric. I know the entire price system, not just today. I know it for the future. I know it for every item at every time horizon, its relationship to the value of every other item. Now, the the missing piece is 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 obviously fairly easy to figure out. To figure out the future exchange rate between apples and bananas, I need two things. I need to know the future price of a banana and the future price of an apple in dollars because I already know because of nominal interest rates and know that $1 becomes 2. Okay. But knowing these the future price of apples and bananas is the same as asking what an apple inflation is going to be relative to banana inflation. So let's suppose that in five years, and we know that banana inflation is you know 20% a year, and so we know that um, a banana today costs a dollar, and in five years, that banana is going to cost two dollars. Um, and so if you took your dollar and invested it today, and you had two dollars in five years, you could still buy a banana. Okay, so... But let's suppose at the same time, apples have no inflation. In five years, an apple is still costs a dollar. So then today, one apple is the same as one banana, but in five years, you'll have to trade two apples to get that one banana. That one banana is, is more expensive, it's more valuable, it's worth more, more apples. An apple in uh, in in five years, still costs a dollar. A banana costs two dollars, so you have to trade two apples to get a banana. Um, because interest rates were higher than apple inflation, I can buy more apples in the future if I invest my one dollar. In five years, take that two bucks and buy two apples. That's my real return in units of apples. Uh, of 100% over five years. I've doubled my number of apples. But I have a 0% real return in banana space uh, because banana inflation is the same as interest rates. That means its real return is zero. Because, and we we talk a lot on this program about the Fisher equation, that, that uh, nominal interest rates is roughly the sum of real interest rates and expected inflation. And so... Um, and an ex post, it's it's actual inflation. Uh, so, if my if my if my banana inflation is the same as interest rates, then that means that my real return in banana space must be zero. Okay, so I can buy one banana today. I can buy one banana in five years. That's zero percent. That's zero real return. Or we always think about it the other way. We think about it in terms of, in, you know, the value of the banana and what's the price of the banana. You know, I, I, the the investment is the banana. So, and maybe this works better with something which doesn't like completely rot away in five years. You know, I've got a pile of copper, and in five years it's still a pile of copper. 
So its real return is sort of definitionally zero. Anyway, so that's – but let's just – you know what? Let, let's go back. Let's just pretend that bananas don't decay because I was doing so well with apples and bananas and, and bringing in copper. Now I'm just going to confuse it. So we'll just go back. The, the banana is just like a super banana. It doesn't actually decay. Okay, and so I have a zero return in banana space. Uh, I have, you know, if I invest dollars and then buy bananas in the future, or if I just buy a banana today and just hang on to it, either way, I have one banana in the future. So inflation then ties these forward real quantities together. I actually don't need to know what interest rates did to my dollars to double my dollars in five years. I don't have to know that to know the relative apple to banana exchange rate in the future. I just need to know their relative inflations. I need to know that I was able to, to double or that, that I'm able to buy twice as many apples in the future because their price didn't change uh, and the price of, banana, of a banana doubled. So that's if I just know that, I don't have to know anything about what, what happened to the dollar the exchange rate between those two items, the real exchange rate between those two real items is defined by their relative inflations. To know their future prices, then I'd also have to know the exchange rate between today's dollars and future dollars, which is the nominal interest rates. Uh, but with just those two things, inflation and nominal yields, I now know everything. Okay, If I know the inflation of all goods and I know the the interest rate at which the the measuring stick, the dollar, uh, that ties current and future dollars together, then I know the entire price system uh, everywhere. Okay, so what? <laughs> so, you know, why does inflation matter? Okay, because so I can so I can tell whether future apples or bananas are are more valuable. Okay, you know, why do you need to know that? Well, <clears throat> for many of you. Um, you don't. Uh, similarly, similarly, most of you don't need to know about the fabric of space-time. I mean, it's there, uh, but you don't really need to know anything about it. But if you're going to be uh, shooting off space probes you know, for NASA, then suddenly the fabric of space-time is incredibly important. And so if you're a, a professional investor, or even you know, an amateur investor, but, but especially a professional investor – then essentially you're launching space probes and, and, and knowing about inflation and how it moves for companies you care about, for the fiduciaries you're investing on behalf of, is not just something. It's almost the only thing. Otherwise, you're just shooting rockets in the general direction of Mars. So, for example, <clears throat> this, is all, this is all actually very important, but... Uh, um, let me give you an example of of how a professional investor needs to know more about inflation than most of them really take time to to know about. Suppose you're the CIO, the chief investment officer for a hospital endowment. So there's a pot of money uh, meant to support the activities of the hospital over the next you know hundred years. And the question for the chief investment officer is, is um, how do you invest that money? Well, you know, what's your goal? Your goal is not actually to maximize the total size of the endowment. Um, there's no definitive way to do that. Uh, all ways to increase the size of the endowment are subject to 
some kind of risk. I guess trivially, um, there is a there is a path with zero risk in nominal space, which is to just do nothing and hold cash. Um, and there are some things which have essentially zero risk in real space, but but there's a trade-off between that risk and that expected return. So your goal is really to maximize. Um, we we tend to think of of things. We tend to express investment goals as maximize the return subject to the level of risk. And, and the problem is that if what you have is an endowment and your goal is to maximize the flow of future medical services you can provide, then the relevance is not to maximize, you know, that flow relative to some nominal risk um uh, you know, risk vector. It's to maximize the flow of medical services you can provide subject to the risk that your strategy leaves you providing less of those medical services instead. So that risk and the units of return are both in units of healthcare prices. Uh, and and uh, you know, ergo, you know, the cost of providing healthcare you aren't providing future dollars. You're providing future bananas, where the bananas in this case are, are, are healthcare, and and so the way you invest to satisfy that mandate depends crucially on how the price of healthcare behaves. Um, if it happens to behave exactly like crypto, then you can have something which has got the risk of crypto and a little bit of return, and you'll end up, you know, with with uh, something which is fairly low risk because every time crypto plunges, so does the, the, the cost of providing healthcare services. Now, obviously, that's nonsense, but, but in such a case, crypto would be a really good hedge for that sort of thing because it's moving just like the thing that you're trying to provide. And this is obviously the, sort of the, the basis of liability-driven investing. You're looking at what it is that costs, you know, what, what that liability is really denominated in terms of, and you're rephrasing your risk and return goal to being maximize the return in units of the thing that you're supposed to be providing subject to the risk of shortfall in units of the thing you're supposed to be providing. Um, so if you can find something that has a good return and whose risk is related to the price of healthcare then that sort of solution dominates a solution which just generally is is a you know a uh, mean variance optimization using nominal quantities and again if you're a, a professional investor who manages a an educational endowment or a healthcare endowment you know that's that's what they're doing they're they're doing liability-driven investing where the cost and the behavior of that liability is, is all they care about. But even those investors don't necessarily think about um, that behavior. You know, they don't necessarily think about what the dynamics of, of inflation is in that particular space. You know, for other people, if you're not managing a healthcare endowment, um, you know, a broader inflation index will do. You know, your future retirement is probably related reasonably well to the overall uh, price level. And so, and so 
taking into account the exchange of today's retirement, you know, cost of retirement, the exchange rate between that and the future cost of retirement, that's that's retirement inflation. That's kind of very similar to, to overall inflation. And therefore, when you're investing, that's your future liability. You're saving for that future retirement. And, and so that needs to be part of your investing equation. Um, if you are a, a Quebec retiree, then you're, you, know, you may want something that has a little more specificity to your future cost of retiring in Quebec than somebody who's living in, uh, you know, in Miami um, needs. Right or someone who lives in Miami uh, and manages a healthcare endowment. <laughs> so, um, and and by the way, we we actually I mentioned the Quebec retirees. We we actually developed exactly such a thing, a, a an an investment strategy that you know reasonably tracks Quebec retiree inflation. And there's a there's a chart in the in the notes, uh, in the show notes. Um, and by the way, just because you don't know exactly future inflation doesn't mean you shouldn't care very, very deeply and try to take it into account, right? I mean, you know, we don't, none of us knows future inflation at all, but if, if I could find the person who had the opposite position and so somebody wanted lower inflation in that or want higher inflation in that particular uh, thing that I want lower inflation in, then we can exchange it even if we don't, if neither one of us has any idea what it'll be, as long as we roughly estimate the value of it uh, similarly. Um, again, just because you can't, you don't actually know it, doesn't mean that it isn't there or that you shouldn't care. Um, space-time is there whether you know anything about it or not, and it affects you every day whether you think about it or not, and inflation is just the same way. And if they made me shoot rockets at Mars, I wouldn't ignore gravity just because I really don't have a good idea of exactly how to do it. I would think about gravity. I'd try to learn everything I can about gravity, and I'd try to take it into account when I you know, started shooting astronauts out out. Uh, out to Mars. So, um, inflation is very similar to that, uh, analogous to that, and that's why inflation is important. Inflation is a critical part of the fabric of the financial fabric of space-time. It is, it is, you know, because the price of goods and services today is the price system. The price of goods and services in the future is the price system. What ties those things together is the array of inflation rates of all those different things. And you put that together with nominal interest rates and you have the entire fabric of financial space-time and that's all that you care about as a, as a consumer or, or as an investor. So uh, I hope that that was not uh, more confusing than saying something like, you know, inflation matters because, you know, dollars buy less over time, which is also true. But I think that, I think that it, it, it sells short the whole notion of how important inflation really is um, and, and how deeply it really is woven into what it is that 
that we do as investors. You know, for 40 years, you could sort of ignore it because inflation was just coming down or going flat. Um, and so if you ignored it, it kind of worked in your favor accidentally. Um, over the next decade, it, it's probably not going to be as, as tame as all that. And so, um, but even if it is, you probably should know a little bit more about it. And that's, of course, why you're listening to this podcast, and I sure appreciate it. So let's go back and answer the trivia question, very short trivia question. What is Dennis Ketchum's main claim to fame? And, uh, and that is that Dennis Ketchum had the sad misfortune to be born to a comic strip artist who forever immortalized him as Dennis the Menace. Ouch. Can you imagine growing up and, you know, your, your dad is making you famous as Dennis the Menace? I mean, I was a menace, but my, you know, dad only, like, muttered that I was a menace. He didn't, like, make it public or anything. Uh, anyway, that's all for today's podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, please refer other people and like and subscribe and all that stuff. Um, and you, if you have a question, you can write to me at inflationguy at enduringinvestments.com. Somebody wrote to me after the last podcast and wanted me to tell them tell them where I got the numbers because his numbers weren't adding up. And I'm more than happy to, to answer any questions that you have. So uh, if you have an inflation problem, come to enduringinvestments.com. And most of all, defend your money. And if inflation is coming for you, remember, you know a guy. Thank you.